How many of you here like magic? Anybody? Come on, anybody? Like, yeah, I mean, what? Uh, well, I mean, you know, like, uh, David Copperfield style, maybe, or, you know, illusionist. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm with you over there, little man. Right, so a friend and I, we once hired an illusionist, an illusionist, to perform at a sports award ceremony here in Abingdon. That guy was good. A couple things that he did, you could tell how he did it, but most of them, you just are like, I have no idea how you did any of that stuff. First saw him at a conference down in Texas and stood across the table from him while he did card tricks and coin tricks. I mean, you know, like I'm literally standing right across the table from him. Like, like he's there, you know, right here. And I'm like right here, like standing, you know, two feet away, three feet away. And I'm looking at what he's doing. And he's doing it multiple times just to show that you, you know, you have no skill and he has all the skill. And you have no idea what he's doing and you can't even figure it out. No matter how many times he does it, you're looking at different spots of what he's doing and you just have no idea. I mean, I didn't anyways. Maybe other people did, but we were all just kind of like, wow. And I like magic. It's fun. Or illusions, maybe is the more proper way to put it. What was unique about this guy, though, was that he used his skills of illusion to proclaim the gospel. Right? Not all magicians or illusionists are like that. Oftentimes, magicians and performers work their craft so they can make a name for themselves, to make money, to build their brand, to show off their skills, saying, hey, look at me, look at how awesome I am. There are certain performances and events that bring people together, right? That's just how human nature is. We're mesmerized by someone's skill, or maybe we're mesmerized by a sport, Crowds gather. We witness the spectacle, right? NFL playoffs are happening right now. Tons of people in stadiums as they've been all season, but now even more so than everyone else watching these particular games. But who's really benefiting from those types of things? And what benefit really is it? In our text in Acts chapter 8, where we are, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, we have a couple of those instances, a couple events and a few people at the center of it. It's a lesson in contrasts and a lesson in bringing people together. The unification of the people of God amongst potential rifts. So in Acts chapter 6 and 7, to catch us up where we are today, we're introduced to Philip and Stephen, two Greek Jewish Christians in the early church who are full of the Holy Spirit. They are appointed servants in the church, but we also find that they boldly proclaim the gospel. So in chapter 7, Stephen is accused of speaking against the Jews and the temple. And he basically says, God is not bound to a temple. You can't control God. You can't keep him in one spot. He was never only worshipped in one spot. And he never will be confined to one spot. God has always been worshipped everywhere. And he will continue to be worshipped everywhere. You cannot control God or tie him down. So he called them to repent. To believe in Christ. And to stop putting God in a box. But the religious leaders didn't like that. So they killed Stephen. They stoned him. The first martyr. They publicly executed him. And they start, as we'll see in a second when we read Acts chapter 8. 
they start to persecute the Greek Christians in Jerusalem. And that's where our story begins in Acts chapter 8. So if you haven't turned there already, Acts chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1. We'll read through verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going up here, you can use, or you can just listen. Or you can look it on your phone. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. I'll read through verse 25. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, that's Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The unity of the church is a priority of God. The unity of the church is a priority of God. This text is a difficult text. When you study it, when you just read it for kind of what it is on the surface, you're like, okay, well, some things happened and there was a magician involved and a couple of apostles and they preached the word of God and, you know, next story. But when you study it, you start asking yourself, why is Luke recording this episode? Why does he include the details that he does? And as you read generally and study the Bible, It is always good to remember that everything we have in here is here for a reason. Some things are left out and some things are included. 
what is included is here for a reason. There's something that God is communicating, that these authors are communicating. Now, this may come as a surprise or shock to some of you, but even secular history books have a particular bent. A book written about the American Revolution from a British author is probably going to include more stories from their side of the Atlantic, an angle that they are relaying the stories from, a purpose behind why they include and emphasize certain events and leave others out or undervalued. To them, the colonists are going to be traitorous ingrates who whine and throw tea to the ocean when they don't get their way, right? When stories are told, they have a point of view and a purpose, something the author is trying to get at. Maybe it's sort of under the surface. Sometimes it's obvious. It's very much true in Scripture as well. The Spirit of God has led the authors, and in our case Luke, to include certain events and certain details in and surrounding these events. In Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus is still on the scene. And the disciples are like, Jesus, what's next? What's going to happen now? Are you about to bring your kingdom here on earth? And Jesus is like, no, not exactly. Or at least not how you think. What is going to happen is you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he tells the apostles. Those whom he chose to be his specific witnesses, witnesses to the resurrection, to his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And up through chapter 7, we haven't really gone beyond Jerusalem. So how are the apostles going to obey that original command? To be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, chapter 8, we're presented with a great opportunity for them to do that. Look at verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Except the apostles. That's a key fact right there. Why did the apostles not leave Jerusalem? Well, I'd say, number one, it's probably because the persecution that was happening was a persecution against the Greek Christians. Those like Stephen and Philip and the Hellenistic widows that they were helping to serve in Acts chapter 6. The families that were Greek, that were in Jerusalem. The apostles were all Jews from Israel. They spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. The religious leaders didn't have as much a problem with them as they did with these outsiders, these Greek-influenced know-it-alls who were trying to change the customs that had been handed down by all of the previous religious leaders and scribes and such. These Greek-influenced know-it-alls who didn't worship the temple and worship the law like the then-current leaders were teaching and expecting. The apostles themselves didn't seem to be facing the same degree of persecution that these other Christians are. So they just kind of fade into the background or just kind of stay put. They don't get involved, so to speak. They don't have to leave, so they don't. But in verse 4, we see what happens because of this spreading of the people to these other areas. 
Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, attempting to quiet the message of the gospel, this message about salvation through the risen Christ had the opposite effect. Instead of shutting it down, it's now spread. Right? Like when you squish a bug, its guts go everywhere. You know, (laughs) something like that. It's a really bad example, but you know, I mean. (laughs) And it spreads. Why? Because of the faithful witness of those whose lives are at stake. Isn't that often the pattern of God, though, to see, to turn what seems like terrible conflict into an opportunity for God to work? God is glad to use our obedience in the midst of our suffering for his glory. Times of suffering are real, and it stinks. But if all we do is try to take away the suffering or see it as an obstacle instead of an opportunity to allow God to shine through in the midst of it, we may be missing out on being a part of his work in this world. I mean, look at this situation that we have here. Philip and the others are fleeing for their lives, so they're not just rolling over and giving up and saying, fine, you're persecuting us, just go ahead and take us in. No, they're leaving. They're saying, we don't want to get jailed. We don't want to get stoned like Stephen did. No, they run away. They said, if we aren't welcome here, if the message of the gospel is not welcome here, then maybe it will be welcome outside of here. So they ran away with a purpose, to proclaim the gospel. Now, many people were doing it, not just Philip, but we focus in on Philip because there is a potential for disaster in this scenario with Philip. And what is the potential disaster? That the apostles are not a part of this gospel expansion to the Samaritans. Because if the apostles are not a part of it, then it might be construed or viewed as though this is a separate work, something different, something distinct, something detached from the churches in Jerusalem. And it might be construed this way because now they're going outside the Jewish realm. They're entering into Samaria, half Israelites, if you would, who don't hold to the law the same way that the Jews do. They made their own temple. It's a different country with different views. There was Latent animosity here, a rivalry, a tension, a division. But the gospel cuts through that. The message of the gospel is a message that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, adult nor child, poor nor rich, black or brown or yellow or white. All are invited to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to Christ, to believe that Jesus is able and ready to save us from our sin and the penalty of sin. We preach Christ crucified and invite all to respond to him in repentance and faith, that God did really raise him from the dead to show that he has the power over sin and death. So for for each of us, there's that question of, Have you done that? Are you following after Christ? Not just to avoid the consequences of your sin, like Simon the magician, or to have a friends with benefits relationship, 
but to submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Have you entered into that relationship with Jesus? And if you haven't, you can do that right here and right now, even as I'm talking. There's nothing stopping you. And this is the same message that Philip has in our story. Philip preaches Christ crucified. The Samaritans heard him and saw the miraculous signs that he did to prove that this message was authentic and true. You see, the miracles that he did were not just to alleviate the pain and suffering of certain people. Yeah, lame people were healed. Yeah, paralyzed people were no longer paralyzed. Those who had literal evil spirits dwelling inside of them, those spirits were cast out. These people now had a renewed ability to live their own life. Demonstrations of the Spirit, proof of the truth of the gospel message. And even though they had followed this other magician around, Simon, they now saw the real God at work. They believed Philip's message and they were baptized. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized. But there are two potential points of conflict here. Has Simon really repented? And will the Samaritans be accepted into the church? Has Simon really repented? And will the Samaritans be accepted into the church? If you want to call it the universal church. Because both of these things have the potential to divide the church. If Simon hasn't really repented, if he hasn't truly believed and cast off his past life, then he could really wreck some havoc in the church. Instead of giving the glory to God and making Christ the focal point of the message and the miracles, he might continue taking the glory for himself, as it was said when we're introduced to him. He made a name for himself. He puffed himself up. That he himself was somebody great, he said. And that would certainly lead to great confusion and dissension. But our God is a God of unity. The unity of the church is a priority of God. And then that second issue of the Samaritans being welcomed into the larger body of the church, the universal church, perhaps the apostles should have been a part of this evangelistic expansion in the first place. Remember, they were commanded by Christ at the beginning of this book in Acts chapter 1. to go and to be his witnesses in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But they're still stuck in Jerusalem. Not because they're in chains, not because they themselves have been arrested yet to this point. I mean, they were for like a night and the angel let them go and they were like, oh, but that was before this. They were free. They were doing whatever they could do. Maybe because they were a bit complacent when this opportunity first arose. And so perhaps God is giving them this explicit opportunity to be obedient to his command. And by doing so, also legitimize this growth of the church. To turn this hostile relationship into fellowship. And we can look back at the Gospels and remember that time when John and his brother James asked Jesus, if they could call down fire from heaven to consume a whole village in Samaria because they didn't let Jesus stay there? 
They weren't just mad at the Samaritans because they didn't accept Jesus. They already hated them. Like, I'm a Cowboys fan, so there are certain other teams that I hate, that I don't like, that I would like to not see win. As an American, there are other nations that I'm naturally inclined to not like. That's how we're raised because of the history books that we've read, right? I'd like to blame those, but, you know. I mean, they do have certain bents, and so they do teach us, you know, America's great and all the other people are not. There are certain things that I'd naturally, certain people, that I naturally don't want to get along with. That's what it was like for the Jews and the Samaritans. Right? And, and that encounter with James and John and, and Jesus in the Gospels, trying to call down fire from heaven to just consume them. Hey, they rejected us. Why don't we just torch them? It was a good opportunity to show them who was really on top, to assert dominance. Come on, Jesus, we really need to stick it to them. They've already deserved it, and now they deserve it even more. And Jesus, as he often does, just kind of shakes his head and and walks away. Come on, guys, follow me. This is That's not the path that we're going down. What God does is he breaks down the dividing walls between us. The unity of the church is a priority of God, but not at the expense of true repentance and faith. So the question is, has Simon truly repented? And will the Samaritans be accepted? And we get an answer to both of these when Peter and John come onto the scene in verses 14 through 19. So look at this again, starting in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. There are many barriers that we have to unity. One of them we see here is when the leadership is not on board, or at least not on board yet. I don't know if you've ever had to work in an environment where you were at odds with your boss or your boss was asking you to do something that they themselves weren't ready and willing to do, that they didn't really believe in. And you're saying, yeah, but that's just what the higher-ups are telling me to do. And you're like, yeah, but you agree that it's not something that we should be doing. So why are you making me do it? When the leadership is on a different page than you are, it becomes difficult to have unity. Maybe you found that in work. Maybe you found that in other realms of your life. It can be a barrier to unity. Trying to control and manipulate God, we see Simon doing. He says, hey, let me give you some money so that I can then make some money. I mean, that, that's the idea. It's sort of implied there, but it's pretty clear from what Luke records for us that his heart is not right, because that's what Peter says. Your heart's not right. What you're trying to do is you're trying to continue on in this lifestyle that you've already had and just add this on to your repertoire of tricks. 
That's not the point. You've missed it. It's not about you and what you're able to do. And trying to control the power of God means that you've missed the point of who God is and what he is doing. Maybe it's just thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. Uh, That is a barrier to unity. Whenever we say, I know what's best, and I know who's most important, and everything else just kind of falls to the side, so that that's all my concern becomes. Another barrier to unity is just our differences, just the natural differences that we have as humans, which is what we find here between these early Christians and the Samaritans, between these Jews and Samaria. They're different people, different culture, different background. The Jews say, look, we stayed faithful to God. Yeah, like for a hundred more years, sort of, but not even not really. The Samaritans used to be the people of Israel till they were taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC. And then they were they're mixed in with all the different nations around them. They, didn't, they were no longer pure Israelites. And they hated one another. They had rival temples up until that first century BC, until one of the Roman generals came and destroyed the Samaritan temple. They didn't like each other. And sometimes it's naturally people that we don't agree with. But the need for unity is all throughout Scripture. Let me just give you the next several books in the Bible that have instances of this where it's explicit and explicit in different ways. So Romans 12, verses 14 through 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. There's your word, harmony. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there's two more words, harmony. Live peaceably with all, so far as it depends on you, as much as you have control over the situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That you agree, that you're united. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled 
to God. So several words so far that are akin to unity, harmony, peaceably, agree, reconciliation. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are one. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, as Paul speaking, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Then further down, verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Philippians. Really, you could read the entire book of Philippians. When I was in seminary, I wrote a paper on Philippians. And what I tried to argue, which my professor didn't really care for, was that this entire book is about unity. Like if you had to pick one theme, a lot of people say it's joy. And there is a lot of joy. And the word joy is all throughout this book. But really, in every single chapter, you have talk of unity. These people are making fun of me saying, hi, you're in chains doing God's work. And Paul says, that's fine. What's more important is the fact that Christ is being proclaimed. I can still find room for unity, even though they don't see my ministry as legitimate. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It sounds a lot like Paul cares about these people, this church, having unity. Colossians 1, last one I'll say, or read. Colossians 1, starting in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So being knit together, harmony, peaceably, agreeing, being reconciled, being one. 
having the same mind, being of full accord, being knit together. This idea of unity is vastly important to God for the local expressions of church and for the universal church also. But unity is not conformity. Simply put, there are some things that you just cannot conform to. And I only want you to be like me in so much as I am like Christ. And it doesn't take being a Western white middle class male to be like Christ. You can be an Eastern dark skinned poor female and still have the same spirit of God that I do. One of the saddest things about our text is not what is in the text, but what has been done to the text. This text has become sort of a linchpin, a focal point for division in the church. Because some people read our passage and they say that there is required some sort of second baptism, a spirit baptism. They say that this text is proof that an outward manifestation of the Spirit is required to prove that you have the Spirit. That just as the Samaritans had the Spirit come into them after they had already believed and were baptized, that's, that's now the normal pattern. Maybe that someone has to lay hands on you in order for you to receive the Spirit. Maybe that you have to speak in tongues to prove that you have the Spirit. That water baptism and spirit baptism are not concurrent events. That saving faith and spirit baptism are not coincident realities. The very text which records the coming together of the early church into a unified yet diverse community is now, has become a dividing line. What Luke meant to celebrate as God's means of uniting the church across regional and ethnic lines has now become a dividing line. And this is exactly what the devil intends to do to us. If you can't beat them, divide them. It was once our strength and what continued to propel the ministry of the gospel further and further to the ends of the known world as we read throughout the rest of the book of Acts. It was once the strength of the church and now it's become a weakness. It's true of the universal church, and it's all too true in the local church. And it's not just this issue, it's a multitude of theological differences. We each have our own hills to stand on and defend, and we neglect or work against the unity that God has called us to. And it's no wonder the Spirit doesn't seem to be working in our midst as much. We have grown content in the stagnancy of our mission. We have grown accustomed to our expectations being catered to. We have turned our eyes inward instead of keeping them focused outward. We have taken our eyes off of God and put them onto ourselves. Our dependency is no longer on the work of the Spirit in and through our lives. Our dependency is now our own hard work toward our holiness. Our concern is my problems and my issues and my preferences, my church and my ministry and my recognition. The lust of the flesh and the pride of life have overtaken our souls. The subtle lies of the devil have infiltrated our hearts. The natural tendency to look out for number one 
has risen again. So what do we do from here? How can we move forward as Christians and as a church so that we're not just serving ourselves and our own kingdom, but we're actually serving God and seeking to further his kingdom? So the simple things that I would say is, well, let me say this first. I haven't fully given some of the reasons why I think that a second baptism is incorrect. I think all you have to do is read even the next couple chapters and you see that when baptism comes up again for Paul or Saul, then also for Cornelius and the Gentiles, that it doesn't happen the same way that it happens here in Acts chapter 8. And so that should be a light bulb that goes off, a warning flag that goes off for anybody who says that Acts chapter 8 is the way in which we are supposed to receive the Spirit. That Acts chapter 8 is the normative and the usual and the regular way that even now, 2,000 years later, is supposed to happen when you become a Christian. We should see these other instances in Acts itself where it's nothing like what happens here in Acts chapter 8. That makes us question and say, hey, maybe that's not what always happens because it's not what always happened back then and it's still not what always happens now. And I can make those arguments and we can talk about that more and I'd love to have more of those conversations with Anybody and everybody who's willing to sit down and look at stuff. There, there are two things that I would encourage us in, apart from just real legitimate Bible study. And I'm just going to kind of put them in, in two categories, what we can control and then what God controls. What we can control and what God controls. So what can we control? What can we control in order to do our part to unify the church, to bring unity in the midst of relationships. The first thing I'd say about what we can control to bring unity is to keep our eyes focused on Christ. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. When things are going well, I look to Christ because I know that he is the one who is providing for me. When things go south and I'm suffering, I look to Christ because I know that he is with me in the pain. So I'm trying to be careful not to fall into pride and patting myself on the back when things are good and things are going well. But I'm also careful not to fall into despair and hopelessness when my expectations or desires aren't met then even if I fail at either or both of those ends of the scale, my eyes, no matter what the circumstance, focus back on the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I'm reminded when I keep my eyes focused on Christ that my righteousness is not my own, but is Christ in me. When I have failed, he has not. When I have forsaken him, he has remained faithful. This is what I mean when I say we need to keep our eyes focused on Christ. Because when my eyes get focused back on the situation and when my eyes get focused on myself, 
I lose sight of what's truly important in the midst of it all. What we can control is keeping our eyes focused on Christ. And the second aspect of that is pointing others to Christ. Encouraging others to focus on Christ. When times are good, we encourage them to remain faithful, to not look at the money or the success or the good vibes or the good feelings in that specific moment at the expense of looking to the one who provided it. When times are bad, to remind them that Christ never leaves them nor forsakes them. Where does your help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And the great thing about this is that it works for Christians and for non-Christians. It's what we ought to be doing as Christians, as a church, in any and every relationship. Either way, the point is the truth of what we know from God's word, whether they believe it or not, whether it's to a fellow Christian or to someone who doesn't believe. If we really truly believe what God has given to us in this word, then we really actually think that what is best for someone else, whether they have Christ or not, is to look to Christ, is to have Christ. That the answer to true peace is Christ, that the path to life is Christ. That love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control all flow from the Spirit of God. So if anyone desires the truest and purest expression of these, it comes from God and is the fruit of a relationship with him. So if you've got a friend who's down, they're not a Christian, what's going to help them not is What's not going to help them is just saying everything's going to be okay. What's going to help them is to share the truth with them, not to beat it over their heads and to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, you got all these problems because you don't believe. I mean, like, let's be gracious in those moments, but let's know that that's where we're coming from and where we're trying to lead them to because we know that it is true. That when they have a moment where their hearts are open and receptive to hearing a truth that we're ready to give it. And that that truth is stop looking at yourself and your circumstances and look to Christ. That when we have a friend who is a Christian and times are tough, it's not, hey, you know, things are going to get better because they might not. It's, hey, even in the midst of this storm that might last the rest of your life, Christ is enough. So that's what we can control. That's not much. And so what does God control? Well, plainly put in 1 Corinthians 3, as Paul says, I mean, we can water, we can sow the seed, we can proclaim the gospel all we want, but it's really God who gives the growth. So what does God control? Really everything. At the end of the day, we can say all these words, we can take all these actions, but those aren't going to really do anything unless God himself, through the work of his spirit, makes it effectual, actually impacts, opens up someone's eyes to see, their ears to hear, their heart 
to receive the truth. And this is where it comes, where we know that, that if we know this, that we know then that we have to pray. Because if God controls any growth and all growth, then we have to ask God to actually do the growth, to make it happen. So we're not just focusing our eyes and thinking, I've got to keep doing this, I've got to keep doing this. We're praying and submitting to the fact that I can't change my heart. We're submitting to the fact that this friend of mine, I can't change her heart. But God can. And so in recognition of the fact that God controls the actual growth, we pray for God to give the growth. And we depend on him. This text that we have is an instance where the church really could have divided and split. Or there was ample opportunity here in a couple different scenarios for there to start to be an early rift. But God cares about unity in his church and he took action to make sure that he showed us, even now, 2,000 years later, that unity is important to him. And if he did that and took steps to make sure that that unity was preserved, back then, then certainly he still cares about it now. So I pray that we would consider for us as a church, as a local expression of the body of Christ, how we can continue and grow in our unity together, but then also, as we do every single week, how we can pray for other churches, pray for other Christians that aren't a part of our local expression, how we can encourage those other Christians that are in our community to continue living faithfully. How, what, what, what can we do to bring unity in our town to the churches that are here? Instead of just saying, look at me, I have all the answers. We're the best. We're the only ones who are doing it right. And instead, humbly saying, you know what? We might not be the best at everything. We might not be the best at anything. But we care about what God's doing in these other churches. We care about what God's doing in this town broader than our reach has. And we want to come alongside them as much as we can to pray for them, to encourage them to see that they remain faithful, to see that they don't give up when they still have work left to be done. So I pray that we would consider that. Whether it's just over the next few minutes or whether it's tonight or for this week and, and onward, 
what steps can we take to bring unity amongst ourselves and to those in this town? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the message that sometimes is kind of underneath and the, the undercurrent that flows through these stories continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is not calloused and hard, but that is open and receptive to realizing that maybe there's some changes that we need to make. Maybe, maybe there are some things that we need to do, practical steps that we can take as, as individuals or as a church to bring unity amongst one another and then also just amongst other churches here in Abingdon. God, would you give us wisdom? Because we don't know what to do and we don't want to just do what seems to be right. We want to do what your spirit leads us to do. That you might be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.